The Wake Knot by Robert McMinn Chapter 34 Dreams That ghost had been for many a month the background of all his thoughts and dreams. Dropping James back at the hotel, Chris and Charlie decided that notwithstanding the cold weather, they would follow through with their original rest day plan and drive further into the fashionable part of the Dordogne. This meant heading towards Sala La Caneda, which they'd both visited separately five years before, but then turning off before they quite reached that particular tourist trap. As Charlie drove, Chris connected his phone to the hire car's Bluetooth and started tapping through his music app. Charlie said, You gonna play some Sinatra? What? Oh, no, just general. He tapped the screen. Music. Brandy Carlyle started singing something about finding a way back home and Chris settled back on his seat to watch the scenery. No longer leaning into Sinatra then, she said with a smile. Now and then, Chris said, but not quite as much. There's a lot of music. After 90 minutes on the road, they pulled into a small car park at the bottom of the village of Lumey, where two bridges crossed two rivers, meeting at a right angle in the centre of the span. Chris was now seeing cabalistic signs everywhere. Two bridges that meet in the middle. What could it mean? The sun was breaking through the clouds down in this part of the region, and it was slightly warmer if you were sheltered from the wind. It was time for lunch, and they sat in a quiet restaurant garden with the other end-of-season visitors, overlooking the two bridges and discussing their discoveries of the morning. That someone was camping out in an empty holiday let was no real surprise, but the fact that all the doors appeared to be secure, and that the sliding door out into the poolside deck had been locked from the inside, was more of a puzzle. I'd like to maybe catch sight of who it is, Charlie said, between mouthfuls. Do you think we can see the house from that field we walked across that time? They'd brought with them the paperwork given to them by the estate agent, which included a plan of the site. Chris looked with curiosity at the incredible selling price of the modernist house. Bob was sitting on a fucking fortune, he said, thinking back to the day he'd first met her, when she'd been wearing a filthy, baggy T-shirt and had been shuffling around the house in her dirty bare feet. And she's taken her secrets with her to the grave, said Charlie. Chris turned with the same curiosity to the sales particulars for Bob's, actual residence, and noted that the price was more reasonable but still a hundred thousand euros out of his reach. If he was lucky, he might get eighty-five thousand for his place in Northumberland, plus his remaining savings, which would perhaps buy him Bob's smallest bedroom, but not the books. He read further through the details and then stopped, dead, at the names of the vendors, which were listed somewhere on the second page of the house details. One of the names was obviously Barb's son, Alex Cooper. The other was presumably her daughter, but it was the name that caused Chris's heart to stop. Look at this, he said, passing the relevant page to Charlie across the table and tapping the names. Mrs Jane Merriweather, she read back to him. That name seems familiar. Chris said nothing, just looked at her across the table, the implications sinking in. And was that the wife? Charlie prompted. Chris shrugged his shoulders, his appetite gone. A pretty huge coincidence, if not, he said eventually. 
I don't think I ever knew the name, though. Wouldn't it have been part of the news story? Probably. Maybe I knew it. I, I don't know now, because suddenly it feels like I knew it all the time. An online search squared the circle. The connection between Celia Patel and Chris, both staying in Lusignac in the same week, neither knowing the other. Something to do with the headmaster's suicide and his antidepressants connected Chris to Dr Patel. And now it appears there was, all along, a connection between the owner of the holiday cottages and the dead teacher. Barb had been Merriweather's mother-in-law. Chris felt numb. Was it revenge? Was this what it was? Was everything else just a distraction? Patel had been lured here by a competition win and he... He had been handed what might have been a free holiday as long as he was available in that particular week. They called for the bill, then went for a walk up to the top of the village, following the signpost for the botanical gardens. It was a steep climb up narrow, cobbled lanes, unsuitable for motor vehicles, and they didn't talk much. Chris's mind was racing through the possibilities, thinking about the stranger who had so casually offered him a fairly expensive two-week holiday in the sun five years before. He did an image search on the name, but Alex Cooper was both a professional footballer and the name of a woman who had been forced by her family into conversion therapy. There was no finding Barb Cooper's son amongst that noise. They browsed in gift shop windows and perused the bill of fare at a couple of restaurants. Mostly it seemed to be a place where a few people actually lived. Charlie sat down on the steps of the church at the top of the village and petted a friendly cat. Chris watched her in silence. When the cat ran away, spooked by some invisible threat, Charlie said she wanted to look around the church. As her eyes adjusted to the dark interior, she said, we found our connection, and maybe a motive. Motive matters more than anything here. But I still don't believe Bob could have overcome Celia Patel. You said it yourself at the time. She was a tall, slim, healthy woman. Bob was an overweight pensioner with, it turns out, less than five years to live. And whoever struck Meg from behind was able to drag her across the garden and throw her into the pool. An outside chance Bob could manage that, the element of surprise, but I don't see it. Chris agreed. You're right. And then there's the Garcia murder, if that's too is connected. Can't see a pensioner overcoming him. He was taller than Celia. So we're still looking for a killer, said Charlie, looking at the church altar. A powerful individual, or more than one of them. I'm thinking the son must be a candidate, Chris said. Charlie nodded. They left the church and walked back down to the bottom of the village. It was a little after three in the afternoon much warmer than it had been first thing. At the car, Chris said, you drive, back or onwards. Let's go a little further, said Charlie. It's nice down this way. They consulted a map and decided to follow the path of the river for a while. They stopped a couple more times to take photos and as the afternoon wore on, the sky cleared. At Cueb Bigorok, they crossed a bridge and headed south on the D-710 to Belvez, a medieval village surrounded by new housing estates. It sat upon a clifftop perforated by prehistoric caves, signposted as carved troglodyte. As at Limay, 
They parked outside the medieval part of the village and walked into the narrow, cobbled streets, which was somewhere in the middle of the switchover from daytime commerce to evening entertainments. It was a lively place, busier than Le May had been, and as the sun disappeared and it grew dark, they identified a restaurant they would eat in later and climbed up into the fortifications to work up an appetite. The old village square had a pillory post, and they stopped to read the sign nailed to it which detailed the various offences that would lead to such a public disgrace. Chris couldn't help thinking of his own transgressions, the intrusive tabloid exposés that had been the modern equivalent of that pillory post, and always justified in the name of the public interest. It shamed him to think of them. At the town wall they were able to look across the countryside in the failing light. In spite of his dark thoughts, Chris was finding the village very congenial, but Dent asked Charlie what she thought about it in case he broke the spell. As they climbed higher into the fortified area, there came a moment of clarity. They'd just cut up a narrow step lane and were crossing another into a wider cobbled street. They heard music coming from a house on the right, and looked over to see a family group sitting outside the front, enjoying a meal under nothing more than their porch light. Their faces were in shadow, but the soft jazz playing from an open window and the cheerful voices enjoying the last gasp of October warmth told Chris all he needed to know. They were seated on the most basic kind of white moulded plastic chairs and a cheap plastic table, something Chris had noticed about France. Few people bothered with expensive garden furniture. In Britain, middle-class people spent a fortune on expensive things for their dream gardens, but all that really mattered was location. With the right location, and therefore the right climate, you could sit on an upturned bin and be happy. He stopped in the middle of the street and turned around with his arms slightly outstretched. Here, he said, this is the place. Charlie stepped into his embrace, and they kissed. One of the family members in the shadows behind them made a comment, and there was a little ribald laughter, which Chris and Charlie joined. It is beautiful, she said. Perfect evening. They walked on, holding hands, but then stopped again almost immediately. There, in front of them, was a single-storey house, with a paved front garden, a stone's throw from the family eating their dinner on the cheap plastic garden furniture and positioned next to the gate was a sign, Avondre. They both took a photograph of the house and the sign, which had the details of the Agence Immobilier offering the sale. A few minutes later, sitting at their table in the restaurant, they used Charlie's phone to look up the website and the price, a little over €250,000. The waiter brought some bread and the menus, and Chris pressed his lips together, considering, still brooding, still reluctant to break the spell by speaking his thoughts out loud. He put his phone back in his pocket. Charlie reached across the table and took his hand. You want to go halves, she said. Without thinking that she might only be talking about the meal, he replied, Yes, but what I'm wondering is, how would I, how would we live if we lived here? She shrugged. Frugally, I should think, and hope to make lots more documentaries. He moved his head down to his shoulder and back again, giving the idea some serious thought. 
in our dreams perhaps, but even that wouldn't be ideal because it would mean being away from home a lot, wouldn't it, which would defeat the object. They looked to the menus and ordered, relishing the chance to charge another meal to expenses. The restaurant filled up around them and the atmosphere grew warm and convivial. At some point during the meal, Charlie looked around them and said, All this, and troglodytes too. After they'd eaten, while they nursed coffees and enjoyed the ambiance of the restaurant, Charlie pulled from her rucksack Bob's pack of tarot cards. They'd been well shuffled, so they went through the pack, making piles of the four suits and the major arcana, trying to see if the whole set of 78 was there, or whether there might be some missing. There were, in fact, four cards missing. The Hanged Man, the Three of Wands, the Ten of Swords, and Justice. They drove back to Marais in the dark, reversing their tracks and trusting the sat-nav app not to get them lost on the winding narrow roads. Back at the hotel, a message was waiting for them from Tanya. Change of plans for tomorrow's filming. A special guest to interview. Chapter 35. Le Nud. They put a knotted string round their heads and twisted it till it went into the brain. The surprise turned out to be Serre, looking actually younger than Charlie remembered. Retirement clearly agreed with him. His skin was less grey, carrying the healthy tan of someone who spent a lot of time outdoors, active. He seemed trim, as well as less careworn. Out of the scruffy, plain clothes he'd worked in, away from the stresses of the job, he seemed lighter, even jolly. And he was now willing, it seemed, to openly discuss the case with them, including the theories that had only been in his head and had never been recorded in the file. Charlie was oddly delighted to see him. It did her good to see that someone who had seemed reduced by the pressures of police work had managed to bounce back with a new lease on life. After they'd caught up with the small talk, they started sharing their recent discoveries in the case. At first, he was hesitant, his English rusty, but actually he had quite a facility with idioms and spoke with barely a trace of accent. He said he'd done some travelling in the US and Canada, had been to the UK a few times. Charlie felt ashamed that her own French was no better than it had been five years before. She went through the details of their investigations the shape the documentary was taking, and the different theories of the case she had been working through. Serret listened in silence, from time to time rubbing his hand across his hair and occasionally appearing to wince painfully. Charlie started with the most recent event, their visit to Barb's house and their discovery of the occult books, their theory about the tarot cards and their link to the murder. They laid out Barb's deck of cards, showing the ones that were missing. Serre's eyes widened at first with disapproval at this purloined evidence, but then he shrugged, accepting that the time for official searches was past and that Barb was no longer around to care about her rights. Charlie finished with the news that they believed that Barb's daughter had been married to David Merriweather and that the link between the murders had been the depressed head teacher, his medication, and his suicide. 
Serret listened to all this and then nodded slowly. I knew, or at least suspected, some of this, he said. But for a long time, we investigated the attack on your friend, Megan, as if she was the target. There was some confusion about potential racism, you know this. By the time we arrived at a different theory of the case, there was no evidence to find. After these preliminaries, the re-establishment of their rapport and the settling of nerves, they decided to set up the interview as a classic talking head, simply positioning him in the corner of one of the hotel rooms and filming a discussion with Chris. They omitted the trick of then filming Chris nodding his head and looking interested, deciding to avoid the inclusion of his questions in the edit. They would link Serre's statements together or include them along with the voiceover as an integral part of the documentary. Serret looked uncomfortably off to one side of the camera. He must have spoken to the press on a number of occasions in his career, but it took him a few minutes to shake off the cobwebs of retirement and grow confident in front of the lens. He began to visibly relax as he warmed to his theme and seemed to forget the artifice that was taking place around him. Did you investigate the graffiti symbols sprayed around the second murder scene? Chris asked. There had long been uh, rumours of a strange society in the village, known as Le Neuve Vigilant. When we investigated the Patel murder, we focused at first on the local priest, who appeared to be somewhat deranged. In custody, being interviewed, he raved about the local... Oh, forgive me, I'm uncomfortable even saying the word. Satanists. He said this diabolists had been tormenting him, trying to drive him insane, and he had been ignored by his diocese when he asked for help. I'm afraid that by the time of his arrest they had succeeded. He made little sense. And was this the first time this kind of thing had come up in the case? But no. We had heard stories like this before that the group of Anglais in the village, Le Neux Vigilant, were a cult. The leader was thought to be Edward Moss, who owned the fort. He was known locally as Monsieur Eugenides because of his one eye. Others included his wife, uh, the restaurateur, uh, Barbara Cooper, her son. There were others, and they were harmless, or appeared to be. They had the books, they had meetings... What does it mean, le nerd vigilant? I think you can translate it into English as the vigilant knot or the watchful knot. Or in terms of English history, the wake knot. Maybe. Although this does not make much sense to me. The watchful knot considered themselves a society set up to protect the interests of les Anglais in the region. There had been a point when there had been protests against a number of Anglo-Saxons moving into the area. Church congregations were shrinking. They were paying insufficient local taxes. For example, they would put their household rubbish, yes, they would put their household waste into public bins instead of paying for the weekly collection. You know, so les Anglais had been very unpopular and so they formed a group. Together they were stronger. They agreed on certain compromises. They paid for a large central bin in each village so they would no longer be guilty of, I don't know what you call it in English, décharge sauvage. Fly tipping? Maybe. 
So this was the Watchful Knot, a group of Anglais who were protecting their own interests. It seemed innocuous. Waste collections. They may have unforgivably tormented the priest, who had been one of the main people complaining about the impact of the English on that village. House prices, jobs for local people. But they appeared otherwise to be doing nothing illegal until that summer. What changed that summer? I believe they had been working themselves up to something. I don't know for certain, but I think a kind of bloodlust frenzy had taken over the group. The idea started, as you may have suggested, in revenge. Barbara Cooper was bitter about the death of her son-in-law. The group had come to believe that killing someone would give them some kind of power. But then they had to pick a victim. Barbara Cooper supplied the names. How do you know it was her? An anonymous telephone informant. There was nothing to back up the allegation and we had no basis to investigate properly, but I personally believed it. The informant was somebody who had grown disturbed at the reality of the killings. Go on. Madame Cooper identified the people she held most responsible for the death of her daughter's husband, the drug company who made the antidepressant, which in rare cases has the side effect of encouraging suicidal thoughts in people who take it. You have to admire the determination she showed in researching the names of the people who were in charge of developing the drug. There had been an inquiry, so there were public records. Then there was the journalist who was most prominent in harassing her son-in-law, the one who was so contrite as to allow himself to be interviewed on a news programme after the suicide. And then most audacious of all, the elaborate scheme for getting everybody to arrive in the same place at the same time. It was like the gradual tightening of a knot. First the different strands are introduced, then the crossings are made, and then the noose tightens. Yes, this is where the rest of Le Neur Vigilant got involved. One of them, we suspect Barbara Cooper's son, Alexander, was able to create the persistent survey emails with a prize of a holiday. Celia Patel completed a survey, probably in the hope that they would stop pestering her, and won a holiday. She did this on her home computer, which we were able to examine forensically. Unfortunately, the company Schwann would not allow access to her work computer because the contents of her hard drive had been submitted to the public inquiry. Nor could we gain access to that of Florian Garcia. So I do not know how he came to be in the area, nor how he was lured to his death. It seems extreme, but the group, the knot, once set upon the path, followed each step one by one until everyone was here. The whole scheme is really like a fine piece of machinery. Clockwork. We're only now beginning to understand the extent of the subterfuge. But the killings themselves were not so efficient and methodical. Celia Patel was first and easiest. The only difficulty was the elaborate staging of the scene after she had been killed. Can you talk about that a little? 
These details were never released to the press. Uh, we allowed the assumption that she had hanged herself to take hold. In a reality, the body was posed. She was hanging upside down from one foot with a hood over her head. The free leg was folded behind the other. And the killing itself? We can only assume she was lured to the church or followed there. Given the setting of the scene, my guess is that someone arranged to meet her. She was then attacked from behind with a... Une cordelette? A cord. A garotte. A garotte, yes. She struggled with her killer, but he, I'm certain he, overpowered her. We released very few details to the public. Her name, the church, the rope. Florian Garcia was surely now suspicious, however, having met his colleague by chance in the village of Vertaillac, and his death was messier, more chaotic. And when it came to targeting you, Mr. Marsh, things went completely wrong. We think that the person tasked with the killings was the weakest link. Not organised, not cool-headed. But who was it? Charlie now asked from behind the camera. Serre paused, indicated with his hand that he wasn't sure about what he was about to say. From the papers I was able to find, they called him the Beast. I believe they wanted anyone reading these papers to believe they had summoned a devil. But it was a man, I'm sure. A man attached to l'honneur vigilant who was powerful, ruthless, and most importantly, someone who enjoyed killing. I believe they feared him, but didn't trust him. Like the devil they pretended he was, once invited, he could not easily be dismissed. You don't know his name. Do you have a description? Sightings? We can only surmise his existence from his acts. Without the murders, he is nobody. Without the attempt on your life, which turned into an attack on your friend, he is just an idea. With those violent acts, he becomes real. But he is a ghost, a face in the crowd, a figure vanishing around the corner. Finally, uh, Monsieur Serre, do you think he can now be identified, arrested? Serre gave a Gallic shrug. <laughs>